Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now show on Resonance FM. And this afternoon, we'll be talking about consciousness and its relation to the phys- physical world, uh, in particular, its relationship to the brain and the brain's activities. With me to discuss this hot topic for the 21st century, I have Philip Goff, who is teaching Philosophy of Mind at the University of Liverpool. Hello, nice to be here. And Tom McElland who is doing postdoctoral research at the University of Manchester in a project called The Architecture of Consciousness. Hi there. Uh, I, would like to, I would say that everyone in Western universities these days thinking about the philosophy of mind would agree with the intra- incontrovertible discovery that the activity of the brain, which is basically electrical signals between your brain cells, produces the activity of the mind, meaning all the experiences you have, including hearing my voice and whatever you happen to be seeing right now, and all the thoughts and feelings you have too. However, even given this core agreement, there are still areas of fundamental disagreement among philosophers, unsurprisingly. In debating the relationship between consciousness and the brain, there are four main kinds of position people can hold. One, there is really only matter. This view is called physicalism, or sometimes materialism. Two, there are two absolutely different types of things, matter and minds. This view is called dualism. Three, there are really only minds or mental types of things such as experiences. This view is called idealism. Four, matter and mind are both something else, the same thing. Two versions of this theory are dual attribute theory or neutral monism. As you're here, there are many varieties of views and subtle subviews of these categories. For instance, I am a combination of dualist and dual aspect theorist. I believe that experiences are completely different from physical states of brains, but that both, both are manifestations of the same pattern of information. So, uh, to my guests, I wonder if you could brief, each briefly tell me how you got into the area of philosophy of mind, why you find it a fascinating area to study. Philip, would you like to go first? I suppose what's fascinating about consciousness is it's just proved so difficult to find a place for it in our in our uh-huh. scientific picture of the world, and that's why it's so fascinating. It feels like a place where there's still a, re- a real role for philosophy and for abstract thinking in, in trying to advance our understanding of the universe. I suppose that's my fascination with oh, it. Oh, because it's a real deep mystery that you think philosophers can help solve. Yeah, I think you know, some people say it's the final frontier of science. I don't think I quite like to look at it that way. But, yeah, it's, it's, um, I think, as you say, most people would say in some way soggy brain matter produces the technical world of inner thoughts and feelings and emotions. But uh, I don't think anyone's really still got the first clue of actually how that process happens. I think, you know, we, we understand how, something about how the liver produces bile, yeah. but we don't really understand how the brain produces consciousness. Okay, well, we're going to hopefully find out a bit about that t- uh, this afternoon. Okay, Tom, what, what int- why do you think it's an interesting area to study there? Well, I started mind? out um, doing psychology, and when you study psychology at school, you hear about some of the theoretical issues that are in the background in psychology. Right. Uh, I think it soon became clear to me that actually the theoretical issues are meatier and more interesting okay. than, the, than the science, really. It's those theoretical issues I wanted to get stuck into. Uh, so, so like Philip, I think that there's some um, some mysteries surrounding consciousness that philosophers can uh, make progress on. I think one of the best things about it is that it's a mystery that everyone can get a grip on. So there are some areas of philosophy okay. where, 
you have to do a bit of philosophy before you can begin to care about this problem. Whereas so maybe, maybe we can start, sorry, maybe we okay. can start there and ask what is the problem here? What's the basic problem? Indeed, here? yeah, that's, that's an important uh, place to get started. And uh, interestingly, there is some dispute about what the problem is. So things get messy before we even get started. But uh, I think the problem is roughly this. We know that consciousness uh, arises presumably from brain processes. Right. But it's not entirely clear how. And in fact, there are several arguments to indicate that it can't possibly arise from brain processes. That consciousness is some non-physical phenomenon that's distinct from physical goings-on. Right. But that view faces its own problem. Okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think the way I like to start thinking about it is, I mean, there have been extraordinary advances in neuroscience in the last 80 years. But I think what neuroscience seems to provide us with are correlations Right. between conscious states and brain states. So neuroscientists can look in our brains and say, you know, brain state, when people have brain state X, they feel pain. When people have brain state Y, they feel excitement. I mean, obviously, I'm ludicrously oversimplifying. Yeah. But to get, to get a theory of consciousness, we don't just want those correlations. We want to explain those correlations. You know, why is it the brain so, state Sorry, let me sort of... By brain state, you mean a mm. state of activity of electrical activity in your brain for yeah, instance yeah. yeah neurophysiological thing so so we know from neuroscience that conscious states certain conscious states go together with certain brain states right but then the philosophical question is why do they go together you know why every time someone has c fibers firing in their brain they feel a certain way why why, why is that and that's it's explaining moving beyond those correlations to an explanation that is Okay, well, the, the next question then, I suppose, is uh, what, what is the best way to think about uh, how this might happen? Uh, maybe, Philip, you want to try that? I think, there's the, broadly speaking, philosophically, two approaches to consciousness. Right. A sort of brain-first approach and a sort of consciousness-first approach. Right. So I think, you know, the, the brain-first approach, very much dominant in the 20th century, probably still dominant to today, and that says... The, that starts from the idea that you know the brain is the thing we really understand from neuroscience. Right. You know that's the thing we've really got a grip on. So what we've got to do is somehow kind of squeeze consciousness into the brain. And I think I think in my view the problem with this approach is that it inevitably ends up redefining consciousness. So you, you know you start off with a feeling of pain and you think you know where's that in the brain? How do I squeeze that into the brain? Doesn't seem to be a place in the brain and soggy gray ma brain matter for a feeling of pain. And so what you do is you redefine, perhaps in behavioural terms, this is a very common strategy, so people say, well, to feel pain is just to behave in a pained way. So, you know, to, when your body's damaged, you scream and try and get away. Right. Now, and suddenly the problem looks a bit easier because, you know, it looks like it's still incredibly hard, but it looks like we've got some kind of a grip on how physical brain processes can produce pain behaviour. But, but, of course, the problem is, it looks like we've sort of, in redefining pain, we've kind of changed the subject. We're no longer talking about the inner feeling of pain. We're now just talking about pain behaviour. And so my worry with, with the brain start, the brain first approach, is a worry you sort of end up leaving consciousness out. So that's right, OK. Uh, Tom, what would you think about that? Do you want so to... I, I take a, a fairly similar view. So right. I, I kind of think that there are a few things we know better than our own consciousness. There's no mystery about what consciousness is we all know it from our own case but could um, you like provide a definition of it for instance defining is tricky one way to think of it uh, which has proven quite popular is this um that somebody's conscious um if there's something it's like to be in right. that mental state for them so there's something it's like 
um, to be me right now talking to this. I'm aware of it on the inside. There's yeah. something it's like for you to hear it. Right. It's not just unconscious whirring of mental cogs. Right. You're experiencing things, and that's what consciousness yeah. is. Okay, so uh, so you you would say start from consciousness. Both of you would say start from consciousness and try and work out how that connects with the physical world. Is that a fair summary of the brain? Yeah, so I, think, uh, I think one one thing that's important is that some people think that our understanding of the physical world right. has to stay roughly as it is. Uh, right. uh, and our understanding you, by of, our understanding, you mean the scientific understanding? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So some people think that the, the science is great, right? You right. can trust the scientists. Um, and if consciousness doesn't seem to fit in with the scientific story, then it's consciousness that we're going to have to rethink to make things compatible to make right. the two meet. Whereas uh, the view I like to take, uh, and the view that Philip likes to take, it seems, is that actually it's our understanding of the, of the physical world that has to budge, because there's not room for us to say. Uh, things like consciousness is an illusion or consciousness isn't quite what it seems to be. So you're, uh, is it mm. right that you both think that we ought to, in order to understand how the brain generates consciousness, we need to rejig our understanding of the physical world somewhat? Mm. Precisely. So yeah. you can, yeah, so you can either start with the brain and try and squeeze consciousness into it. I think that inevitably ends up almost denying the existence of consciousness. Or you can say, no, consciousness is the thing we really understand. You know what pain is when you feel pain right. and you build up your picture of the brain uh, starting with what you know about consciousness so uh, let's see what your individual views on this what variety of uh, philosopher of mind are you philip so i i the view i'm a tr so i think the natural way of spelling out this consciousness first approach where we start with consciousness and try and build up our picture of matter from there and the view i'm myself attracted to is Panpsychism, right? So that's the view that uh, all matter is in some way infused with consciousness, even the most basic forms of matter. Okay. So it's a view that might sound a bit wacky <laughs> uh, from a certain perspective. Unorthodox, I think perhaps. When you when you really sort of get in the mindset of this consciousness first approach, it, it suddenly becomes very natural, intuitive, and I think the most elegant and unified way of finding a place for consciousness okay maybe we'll go into that a bit more in a minute what about you tom what's your view of the basic view of the relationship between mind and the brain so with philip i think there's more to the physical world than is described by science but against philip i don't think that the the hidden aspects of the physical world are actually consciousness involving so I, i'm not a panpsychist okay what do they involve well this is where i have to shrug my shoulders and say it's a mystery so right. there are reasons to believe that there's a blind spot in our understanding of the physical world in other words the reason being consciousness itself right well i think that actually if, if you put consciousness aside and basically do philosophy of science right uh, many people would agree that science can only give us a limited picture of the world so there uh, the scientists and the philosophers of science are saying there's a blind spot. What's um, missing from the scientific view of the world, or what doesn't the scientific view of the world that, That's a fair question. Uh, I think the, the best way to characterise it is something like this. Um, science is in the business of describing the causal structure of things, describing right. how things relate to each other. Right. How they how connect they, together. How they connect together, how they do things to each other. Right. But, but there's more to things than what they do. Right. Uh, and it's that underlying nature that science can't get at okay can i just Philip? back up exactly that point i mean yeah. so think about what physics tells us about an electron right you now physics tells an electron has mass how does it characterize mass uh, things of mass attract each other and they resist acceleration physics tells us an electron has negative charge what is negative charge very roughly things with negative charge repel other things with negative charge and attract things yeah. with positive charge. so everything physics t when you reflect it becomes apparent everything physics tells us about electrons is 
It's not what they are, but just what they do. It's ba- it's defining their behaviour, not yeah, their, their real behavior. nature. And of course, that's very useful information yeah. because if you know how things behave, you can have technology. You can build lasers and spaceships and hair dryers, and you know it's all great. But it's it's not. We shouldn't be. You know, deceived into thinking that's telling us what matter is. So you're saying that basically we don't know what matter is, and there's room for consciousness in exactly. matter. Well, so so whereas con- um, Philip wants to say that behind the stuff that science knows, there's consciousness. Right. I want to say behind the stuff that science describes, there's something unknown, right. and you can actually do some interesting philosophical work, right. speculating about what it might be, while stopping short of the claim that it's consciousness. So uh, you okay. might remember Donald Rumsfeld and uh, George Bush's defence secretary talking about known unknowns. Yeah, this yeah. famous phrase. It's a great idea, known unknowns. Right. So I like to say the underlying nature of matter is a known unknown. Right. Well, you know, we know that we don't know, know its nature. Right, and right. maybe it's that ignorance that makes consciousness seem inexplicable. Okay. But from a God's eye perspective, right, where you do know the underlying nature of matter, the emergence of consciousness from unconscious brain processes is perfectly explicable. But then, uh, Philip, you would say that you do know the underlying nature of matter is that it involves consciousness somewhere, right? No, might be a little too strong. Right. I mean, you know, this is we're all. I think we're in the early days of consciousness. But I mean, let, well, let me say very simply. I, the reason I'm attracted to panpsychism. Is you know, science isn't just about sort of fitting the data. It's about trying to fit the data in the most elegant, unified, simple way. Okay, can I just uh, clarify this? By panpsychism, you mean that every bit of matter has some bit of consciousness to it? Like every electron or every proton or... The view in its most general form would be that yeah, the fundamental constituents of matter, whatever they turn out to be, it's the job of science to tell us what they are. I think right. sometimes we think they're little, you know, little billiard balls, but I think we're, we're, we're past that in our yeah, scientific understanding. Yeah. But whatever they are, uh, in some, have some consciousness involving nature. And, uh, and the conscious, the con- my consciousness of, in my brain is, is uh, the product of the consciousness involving nature of its fundamental parts. That would be general right. characterization uh, of panpsychism. So you wouldn't... So co- you're if I paraphrase your view, is that consciousness wouldn't be possible unless it was already there in the material of the world. Again, uh, again, more, I think that's a little bit strong that it would be impossible. So, I mean, uh, one very well-known panpsychist, Galen Strawson, he does argue that. He thinks mm-hmm. you've got to have consciousness there from the start or you couldn't get consciousness out. I, that's too strong for me. The reason I'm a panpsychist is a matter of theoretical elegance and unity. As When we're doing science, we look for the most elegant, unified, parsimonious picture. And I think panpsychism, at this stage of our knowledge, right. looks to be the most elegant way of finding a place for consciousness. OK, Tom, why, why is that nonsense? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's very easy to call panpsychists names, and many people do, but there are actually very few good philosophical arguments against right. it. So one point that's worth picking up on is this idea of elegance. So, you know, scientists and philosophers alike recognise elegance as a criterion of a good theory. Yeah. But the problem is elegance is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Right? Right. So, so people saying, saying that um, fundamental entities like electrons have consciousness might seem kind of inelegant to some people. It doesn't seem like an elegant view of the world to me because um, I think we have an understanding of um, where minds come from. So at the yeah. beginning of the universe, there weren't minds and minds evolved. And you kind of want to understand You need a brain for a mind, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So to say that consciousness was there from the outset doesn't tie in with other things you know about how the mind, minds and minded creatures right. have come to be. So, so you're quite happy just to leave it blank what, what the ultimate stuff is and then say it's capable of producing consciousness of eventually... 
exactly. I, I, I'd like more than that, but I'm wary of speculation. Can I respond? To sure, that? sure. I mean, just I mean, my favourite example is special relativity. If you look, uh, special Einstein's theory of special relativity is, um, as I understand it, empirically equivalent to the Lorentzian view that preceded it, but it just provided a much more elegant unified explanation of the datum that the speed of light is constant in all frames of reference. Right. The, the theory before that explained the datum, but in an incredibly... In, and explained the datum in a more common-sense way. It didn't have all this weirdness of time slowing down when you... So I think it's a good scientific uh, principle. Forget common sense. Go for theoretical elegance over common sense. And I think that's what panpsychism Yeah, but does. I mean, I know very little about panpsychism. I can e- easily think of some problems. I mean, what sort of consciousness does this basic matter have? I mean, does it have, it doesn't have language, it doesn't have sense, you know, it doesn't have perceptions of senses like we have. So what sort of consciousness? There's a very good paper actually called What's It Like to Be a Quark? That speculates. I mean, look, you know, what, what this is, is a very general theoretical framework for thinking about a possible place for consciousness in nature. And obviously it's, it's the job of empirical science to work out the details within that framework and try and speculate, and we might never be able to get all the details worked out, and that's a very good question, and some panpsychists have answers to it. Some people say we'll never know, so in that way the view might be partly similar mm-hmm. to Tom's, there's a certain level of ignorance there. But it's a broad framework, and it's the job of science to work out the details. Okay. Well, Tom, uh, it's sort of, I don't know, fairly obvious how consciousness would follow from Philip's point of view but it's not obvious how consciousness would follow from your point of view indeed how, how yeah. do you get consciousness out of i know not what it is i I'm, I'm not sure you can um and that might sound unsatisfactory but i think it's important to distinguish two different projects that we might have when it comes to consciousness one project is to try and explain consciousness right. another project is to try and explain why consciousness seems to be inexplicable right. and i think philosophers are really in the business of dealing with the second of those problems uh-huh. Some philosophers. Some philosophers. Some philosophers. Um, and I think by saying, well, maybe it seems inexplicable because we don't have a conception of the, the physical properties that are actually responsible for consciousness. I've explained the mystery. I've explained our sense of yeah. mystery. I haven't explained consciousness. And I was never meant to, so that's okay. But mm, that seems, that doesn't seem very s- sort of, that's a, like a cop out to me. I mean, how would you then go about explaining consciousness? Uh, you wouldn't. Right. But you wouldn't mind anymore because you can make peace with the fact that we're not in a position to explain consciousness now. Okay. Well, I guess I'm a bit more optimistic. <laughs> but well, uh, if, if I could come back to Philip's optimism. So you said it was kind of obvious how um, how um, little conscious bits could add up to create our conscious mm. experiences. The point I'd like to raise is that's just as mysterious as my view. To me, at least, it's right. not at all clear how one quark having a, a reddish experience, one quark having a whitish experience and one quark having a bluish experience could add up to my experience of the French flag, for example. Right. Mm. So Philip's got just as much mystery in his view as I have. Only I'm not aspiring to explain consciousness, so that's, that's why I'm better off. I'm more honest about So that. you basically think consciousness can't be explained? Uh, given the current way in which we understand the physical world, not just today's mm. science, but the very way in which we understand how physical things work, we're not in a position to fully explain consciousness. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess I'm I'm slightly more hopeful. I mean, I as I said, I don't. I think we're still in in the early days on consciousness, but you know, 
maybe w- why why give up? Why why just say you know it's a mystery we'll never understand? When yeah, yeah. panpsychism looks to be, to my mind, a very promising framework. Okay, maybe I- it'll turn out not to work. And there are big challenges. The, the challenge Tom raised, the so-called combination problem. You know, how do little conscious things make a big conscious thing? You know, that's. But this looks like something something we can work on and try and make sense of. Maybe we won't be able to in the end, but give it well, a go. There's, there's various. Uh, questions I could ask about your point of view. One of them being is how does panpsychism differ from idealism, which is the view that everything in the world is a mental phenomena, either in your own mind or in mm. other people's minds or in the mind of God or something. How does panpsychism differ from that point of view? Very good question. So I suppose that they both think that mentality is fundamental. It's part of the fundamental stuff of the universe. And some people think of panpsychism as a form of idealism. But the way idealism has generally been understood is that, as it was famously defended by uh, Berkeley, is that the world is made up of ideas. So, right. so tables and chairs are made up of ideas in the minds of souls. So there's all these souls, individual souls. What do you mean by soul? What's um, a soul? There are individual minds, disembodied right, minds. minds. In Berkeley's view, there are these individual minds. And then the physical world is made up, tables and chairs are made up of ideas in the minds of, ideas in minds. Ultimately, in the mind of God, he thought, he thought the mind of God. So, 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 based- so for Berkeley, why, why is the table still here when you walk out the room if it's made up of ideas? Because the ideas are still in God's mind. So that's what you're saying as well. So that, that, that's not what I'm saying. Right. That's, so, that, so that's my view isn't that uh, I don't think minds are fundamental. I don't think things are made up of ideas. I'm in, in a way a materialist. I believe in matter. I believe in right. the mind. The world is made up of maybe protons and neutrons or, you know, actually not neutrons. You know, maybe fundamental particles, maybe strings, whatever, physical stuff. But I think that physical stuff has a consciousness involving nature. That's okay. very different to you. So I wonder if I, if I could put this gloss on the difference between panpsychism and idealism. So if you're a Berkeleyan idealist, you think that a, a tree, for example, can't exist unless somebody is experiencing it. You take a different view. The tree can exist if no one's experiencing it. But the bits that make up that tree are themselves having experiences. Nobody's experiencing the tree, but it's built out of bits that are having their own experiences. Well, thanks for clarifying Philip's point of view. Can I ask (laughs) a bit about your your own point of view now, Tom? Uh, So you say that there's some fundamental thing that you don't know what it is about the universe that makes both matter and consciousness, unifies both matter and consciousness. What is this thing that both matter and consciousness have in common? Right, yes. Well, um, earlier we, um, we introduced this idea that science only describes the structure of things like electrons and so on, right. but doesn't get at what they're really like. Right. Now, interestingly, something similar seems to be going on with consciousness. So yeah. if a neuroscientist describes uh, pain, they can describe what your pain does, what causes it, what it results in, how it relates to other mental states. It looks like they aren't getting at what it is. They aren't getting at the painfulness of pain. Right. So it looks like both um, in the case of consciousness and in the case of physics, what you need is something that's underlying the structure to flesh things out. So you've got these two projects that are parallel, and it would be nice if they kind of coincided. That would be, in Philip's phrase, an elegant solution to the problem. Sure. Um, the, the idea about not being able to describe the painfulness of pain, is that uh, due to the... F- 
I mean, might not that be just due to the fact that we can't, there are some things that we can't communicate, like my experience of red or pain or anything, I can fully ex- know what it's like to experience them, but I can't put them in words that will fully communicate to another person what it's like to experience them. Could that be a problem there? Exactly. I think that's um, one manifestation of the big problem I'm talking about, which right. is that you can't get at the painfulness of pain. You can't get at the spicy taste of a curry. Right? You can see what's going on in someone's brain when, right. they're, in, when they're having those experiences, but you can't get at what the experience itself is like. And that looks like a fundamental problem for science, not just something we can hope the neuroscientists will sort out over the coming years. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think now we're going to go to a track now. So uh, this will be the church in Constantinople.
hello. Uh, that was the church in Constantinople. Welcome back to the Philosophy Now show on Resonance FM. I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and I'm asking my guests Philip Goff from Liverpool and Tom McClellan from Manchester what consciousness is, and in particular whether your mind is the same as your brain. Now, we heard before that there are different views on uh, consciousness and its nature to, and its uh, relationship to reality. And I was just... Um, one of the common... Uh, things that the people who say that the mind is the same as the brain would say in response to those views is that uh well science has obviously been very successful over the centuries and neuroscience is the application of science to the brain so they mm. would say that ultimately speaking uh, neuroscience will explain consciousness right. in completely in physical terms in relationship to right. the brain processes uh, what's wrong with that view right. Philip? sure so yeah so there, there are many philosophers i like to call them the neuro fundamentalists right who um who, who think you know look there is a problem here but we just need to do more neuroscience right. and that'll solve it um, and, and, and it tends to go along with this, the view that, you know, if, if, the, if you want to do anything else, you're sort of anti-science and you're backward and you're like, you know, people who believe in magic or deny climate change or something. But I mean, to my mind, this is, relies on a very oversimplistic conception of science, as right. though all science is sort of just doing the experiments and getting the data. Whereas, you know, a lot of science, a lot of our break- breakthroughs involve radical reconceptualization of of our picture of the world. So think of relativity that we go from thinking of space and time as distinct things to thinking them as a single unified thing space time and and then with general relativity we no longer think of gravity as a force but as as a result of the curvature of space time i right. mean these radical so, so anyway to, to, to my mind we're going to solve the problem of consciousness not just doing more neuroscience as important as that is i certainly don't want to say that but we're going to have to reconceptualize in some radical way our conception of the mind, the brain, and and the relationship between them. Uh, so you just you're basically saying that our present concept of what science does isn't really enough. Yeah, yeah. we all do in science, but why have a limited conception of it, Tom? Yeah, so so I kind of take a similar view uh, about the neuro fundamentalists. So I think these people often accuse philosophers of being like the boy who cried wolf, right? So all through history. People have said, look, this phenomenon will never be explained by science. And right. it turns out it is explained, right? And it keeps on happening and science keeps on winning. Right. Surely we've learned our lesson now, not to naively say consciousness can't be explained by science because yet again we'll be proven wrong as science marches forward. So that's the narrative yep. the neuro-fundamentalists like to give. Right. And it's worrying. It throws down the gauntlet to us to justify our pessimism about the prospects of neuroscience. Um, But I like to give an alternative um, story of the history of science. Uh It actually suggests that science has this fundamental difficulty in dealing with consciousness. And there's an important sense in which it's made no progress at all on this problem. So if you go back to the birth of science with um, Galileo, who's first kind of trying to describe physical bodies mathematically and use methods that we'd um, regard as scientific, if Galileo is presented with a red tomato, he might be able to make scientific sense of its size, its mass, its shape, the way it behaves. But mm-hmm. what Galileo couldn't make sense of is its redness. Right. So Galileo's trick was to say, well, the redness isn't really a property of the tomato. It's a property of your experience of the tomato. Isn't that right? Well, quite possibly. Right. But now here comes the problem. Galileo banishes redness to the mind. Right. But now we've got a science of the mind. Right? Okay. And the problem reoccurs because neuroscientists say, look... 
you've got these cognitive structures, you've got these neurons sparking and so on. Your experience does these things, it has these causes, but it hasn't captured the redness of your experience. Right. And you can't banish it back out into the world because Galileo's already shown how that's going to be problematic. So I think what some neurofundamentalists do is banish it from reality altogether. But then no let thing. me press mm. the question, if I may. Uh, why, is, why, why is it not the case that in the future there might be some physical explanation of your experience of redness that doesn't rely on something non-physical? Yes, well, I, I think one thing we have to do is not bang the table and say... Sure. I know for certain that neuroscientists will never be able to explain right. it. Uh, but another thing we shouldn't do is just have blind faith in neuroscience and say it's definitely going to sort it out. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. We have to be honest about some apparent deep conceptual problems that obstruct that. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I would completely yeah. be the same. I, I don't, I don't want to say you know, dogmatically. It's just, it, to my mind, is other approaches look more plausible at this stage of our knowledge. And, and the point is that what I'm calling the neurofundamentalists often draw on this narrative of science as, you know, this relentless march of success. But, you know, arguably science... And Galileo is very explicit about this. He, he begins, arguably, physical science by taking consciousness out of the picture. Right. And the reason, to my mind, that science has managed to be so successful is that it took consciousness out of the picture and just focused on describing what things do, okay. how they behave. And that's, that's very useful knowledge, but... Uh, you know, I think Galileo... So in the 20th century, we suddenly think, oh, we've got a hard problem of how to incorporate consciousness. I think Galileo would have said, of course you have. I took consciousness out at the start. Yeah, can, can I sort of paraphrase this argument? I mean, just because physical science has been very um, successful in explaining physical phenomena does not therefore mean that all phenomena are physical. I think, I think it's a bit more than that. The reason it's been so successful is because consciousness was taken out of the picture right and now we're trying to and, put it uh, back in squeeze it back in yeah, and it won't fit from galileo onwards he's very explicit right. and and we just decided look we're, we're just going to talk about what things do rather than what they are and uh, so i think in the public mind there's this idea that you know physics is giving us this complete story of the universe this complete picture of the nature of space time and matter um but i think on reflection, actually, what physics is telling us is how matter behaves. Right. It's not really telling us its nature. All right. On the on the back of that, Tom, I mean, it, it would is there anything about what we might come to increasingly understand about how the brain works, which would help us to understand how consciousness is directed by the brain, or is it a different sort of problem altogether? So uh, that's an interesting point. I mean. Uh, I'd say yes and no, right. probably you know, philosopher's answer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we've been talking about the problem of consciousness. Right. But I think most people would agree that consciousness actually breaks down into a number of different puzzles. Okay, for instance? Uh, so one question is, why am I conscious at all rather than unconscious? Right. Another question is, why does my conscious experience have the particular feel it has rather than some other? Right. So, for example, why, when I stub my toe is my experience the painful kind rather than the sound of a high C on a clarinet, for example. Mm -hmm. So you've got two different questions. Okay, that's an interesting one. Yeah. Now, you might say that science is going to do quite well dealing with one of those questions and not the other. Right? So you can mitigate your pessimism about the prospect in neuroscience. So my preferred view is actually that maybe neuroscience is roughly on the right path towards being able to explain why we're conscious rather than unconscious. But the real mystery the mystery that Galileo had to brush to one side, is why our experience is characterised by the particular qualities it's characterised by, like redness and painfulness 
Okay. Do either of you have an answer to that last question? Well, I suppose I think what's coming out is, I think we're both agreed that just the the, the issues here are very nuanced and there's <laughs> scope for a lot of different positions. Sure. I think I'm a bit more optimistic than Tom. I think if we pursue this panpsychist framework, there's hope we can make a lot of progress. Uh, he's maybe or maybe a bit more pessimistic, but still optimistic in other ways. There's certainly progress we can make on consciousness. So I suppose what we're both united on opposing what I'm calling neurofundamentalism—that you know, forget the armchair stuff. Right. Just get up, just get do more brain science, and you know, I mean, and again, if you think when Einstein was formulating special relativity, he did a lot of sitting in an armchair, thinking about what it would be like to ride on a beam of light, for example. So you know, it's not a, experiments that are very important, but there's there's a scope in science for abstract thought, for deep thought about the nature of possibility. So let's bring the philosophy back into the fray here. You're saying that not only are the findings of the scientists important, but also how philosophers can help people understanding the ideas involved in what Mm -hmm. they're doing experiments on would be equally as important in uh, describing consciousness. Is that a fair thing to say? I think it's perhaps underestimated in the public mind the role of, I think, you know, you look to a scientist to tell you what the universe is like. Maybe you look to a philosopher to make you feel a bit better about the universe. Science no. is us too. You know, you look to Brian Cox to tell you what the universe is like, and uh, Alan de Botton to make you feel better about it. But I think, you know, the, the classic case is Einstein. I mean, there is a, there is scope, especially for something as difficult and troublesome as consciousness, for you know deep thought and reconceptualizing our view of the universe to to you know to make progress. Okay, but what I'm really after is how are we to reconceptualize it to explain consciousness? You must have some views. What's your view on that, uh, Tom? So um, my view is we need to reconceptualize it by being honest about the limits of our current knowledge. Um, yeah, kind of what I was getting at earlier as well. So um, we can't just say that the physical world is just what science describes. We have to be honest about this hidden aspect. Once you've got that hidden aspect, how consciousness fits in begins to make a bit more sense right okay and and philip look let's go into your panpsychism a bit so you've got these fundamental these bits of matter that have fundamental bits of consciousness how does say a lot of bits of consciousness add together to make an experience of the color yellow well this is the this is the classic problem um a lot of work has been done on recent called the so-called combination problem. Most right. people trace it back to William James. Okay. He worried a lot about this. American philosopher of the 19th century. Sure. He, worried, he was initially attracted to panpsychism. He called it the mind dust theory. Right. But for this very problem, he eventually gave up on it. Right. But then he came back to it. But his solution to the combination problem was, we need to give up on logic. And <laughs> so a lot of people don't believe really yeah. it. So this is a big problem. And... It's a view that a lot of lot of panpsychists are working on and thinking about and analysing at the moment. But to my mind, it has the problem of some not a, not a knockdown problem with the view, but something we can work on, something we can think about. In the, the book I'm currently working on, part of it, part of the solution I'm attracted to is that we really need to think more about our understanding of spatial relations. So we've talked about our understanding of matter. Right. What about our understanding of space? And and again with space, I think we tend to think we have more of a grip on it than we do. And really our understanding of it is, is, is formulated through mathematical models. Uh, and not many people thought about, you know, what is the nature of space in and of itself beyond our kind of abstract mathematical understanding of it. So, and obviously, anyway, that, 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 so I think that my own personal view 
is that that we need think about the combination problem. We need to think more about the nature of space. But um, okay, you know, it's early days with consciousness. Right. Sorry to. I think that you. sounds very complicated <laughs> to really yeah, get into. Sorry. So I'm not. I'm going to avoid asking <laughs> you to explain it. I'm afraid. Uh, very wise. Yeah. Tom, what's the difference between consciousness and self-consciousness? You said that was one of your interests. Yes, yeah, so this, is, this is a tricky question. Um, so I think maybe one way of thinking of it is this. When you're conscious, you're aware of a number of things. So you might be aware of the sound of my voice now, aware of a pang of hunger in your stomach or a, a pain in your neck. Uh, maybe one of the things you're aware of is your own awareness. Right. So you could describe self-consciousness as awareness of awareness. Okay. So I'm inviting you now to kind of reflect on your experience. So maybe right now you're aware of your awareness. Right. You so you have self-consciousness. And is it only human beings that have this thing, or do apes have it, or do all mammals have it, or what? Well, that's a very difficult question. Uh, it's not entirely clear. Um, one difficulty is this. Some people think that you can only be conscious if you have self-consciousness. Okay. Right. Uh, now, if we concede that self-consciousness is a pretty sophisticated thing, it's not the kind of thing that infants can have. It's not the kind of thing that lesser mammals can have. Right. Then it looks like we're forced to the conclusion that those beings aren't conscious, which is perhaps an uncomfortable conclusion. Well, I think that's what Descartes concluded about animals, didn't he? That they were all robots. Uh, <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, do you, do you have a view on the limits of consciousness? I mean, where, do, where does, say, real awareness of existence begin with a, with a piece sure. of matter for you philip well one very interesting one thing i'm very much interested in is the relationship between consciousness and more sophisticated thought you know right. reasoning um you know abstract thoughts being able to wonder what how best global justice will be achieved sort of abstract thought right. and actually in the 20th century a lot of people thought that thought has nothing to do with consciousness that it's just a completely different thing. Um, whereas there's a growing movement now of people saying, well, no, actually, thought, even sophisticated human thought, is itself a kind of consciousness. Now, if that's true, then all the problems we've been discussing about consciousness sort of carry over to thought. And so we've got not only a hard problem of consciousness, but a hard problem of thought. So, so I think this is, this is another issue of the, not, not only how we fit consciousness into the physical world, but how we make sense of the relationship between consciousness and human thought. So you basically start off with uh, consciousness being any sort of awareness of anything, right? And then yeah. thought is something more developed like that, it's, using language, language worth, sorry. and self-consciousness. It's worth emphasizing, actually. I mean, the, the, so the way we define consciousness standardly in philosophy as we start out is just it's any kind of experience whatsoever. Right. What, what a rabbit has on a table doesn't... Uh, Often outside of philosophy, it's defined as something more sophisticated, like self-consciousness or self-awareness. So we tend to mean by consciousness, this is just terminological, but just any kind of experience. Is there something special about uh, the way the human brain or whatever is set up that makes us self-conscious and not other animals, for instance? Indeed, yeah. So um, if you think about uh, self-consciousness as the mind kind of directing itself upon itself... Okay, so right. that, that sounds a bit poncy, but what, what I mean is this, right? If you're aware of your own experience, then there must be something in your mind that's pointing at something in your mind. Right. Okay. Uh, now, that looks like quite a clever psychological capacity that most animals don't have, and that we do. And actually, the neuroscience is pretty interesting on this. A lot of progress has been I made on it. I think elephants can recognise themselves in mirrors. 
Exactly, yeah. So um, recognising yourself <laughs> in a mirror, that might have something to do with um, a sense of yourself as distinct from other things. Right. That's already getting pretty sophisticated. Maybe that yeah. involves self-consciousness. It's not necessarily thinking about your mind. Right. So an elephant could say, that's me, whereas that's my sister. Yeah. But can an elephant reflect on their own beliefs, reflect on their, what their own perceptual experience is So you is think like? that needs language to do that? Quite possibly. And so if we're getting some people back think to Philip's level of thought as well. Exactly. So, so I, mm. if you think that something that sophisticated is required for consciousness, then suddenly consciousness is quite dramatically limited to only very sophisticated beings. I mean, even babies wouldn't be conscious. Now, some philosophers are prepared to bite the bullet mm. on that and say that babies only become conscious. What, you mean they don't have any awareness whatsoever because they're not self-conscious? Uh, exactly. It sounds radical. I, sounds I can't quite go down this route Unbelievable. Mm. Indeed. Um, mm. But if you, if you buy this idea that to be conscious is to have awareness of what's going on in your own mind, right. then babies just don't have the tools to do that. So when it looks like a baby is having a painful experience, okay. they're actually not. So, okay, so... For you, or for these people, consciousness only comes into being with self-consciousness. Exactly, yes. Okay. Uh, Philip, what do you think about these sorts of ideas? Yeah, I suppose, I mean, it's in, we've been talking a lot about the relationship between empirical science and abstract philosophical theorising, and I suppose there's a very... I mean, I think that these kind of issues are much more, I think, we should look to empirical science to, you know, whether elephants can recognise themselves in the mirror, you're not going to find that out sitting in an armchair. You've no. got to go out and do the science. But then, even then, these kind of theoretical questions come up along the way. You know, if something's not self-conscious, does that mean it's not conscious? So, so there's an interesting, uh, you know, blend here. Well, the presumably you wouldn't agree with that being a panpsychic, right? Panpsychist. So, panpsychist. I'm not psychic. Okay. <laughs> so presumably you wouldn't agree, agree with that idea that self-consciousness is necessary for consciousness, right? No, certainly not. Because, yeah, so the panpsychist thinks that the fundamental constituents of the physical world have some kind of consciousness. But, I mean, it's, you've got to emphasise that obviously we don't think electrons have thoughts or they're sitting around, you know, yeah, that's feeling existential so angst or something. So what do you think they are conscious of, if I can put it well, that way? There are different views, but I mean, the, 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 broad def the standard view would be that there's just some... So consciousness is just some kind of inner life or experience. So right. the panpsychist thinks there is something that it's like to be an electron. Right. But obviously it's going to be some incredibly crude and simple form of uh, consciousness, of experience, that would be the view. Um, so, interestingly, it's a possible argument against panpsychism. Yeah. If you say that actually consciousness can't ever be that simple. Consciousness right. is actually quite a sophisticated sure. thing. Uh, and if you buy that conclusion, then suddenly panpsychism commits you to electrons having sophisticated experiences instead of basic ones. And panpsychism starts to look less plausible. I think it would so, be very implausible. So there's a lot yeah. of serious um, reflection to do sure. on how simple consciousness can be. If it can be incredibly mm. simple, maybe, just maybe, we can live with the idea that electrons are having these really simple experiences. Maybe like a, an experience of a simple uh, bit of redness. Right? Even uh, that would probably be too complicated. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but at least it's better than electrons reflecting on global justice. Right? <laughs> so, well, yeah. um, if I can say, we're ignoring the elephant in the room who's looking into the mirror here now. But, I mean, it seems from neuroscience that all consciousness is related to activity in your cortex, which is, which is the area 
on the surface of your brain where all your neurons exist. So why isn't that a counter to either of your views to say that consciousness only develops when the brain achieves a cer certain level of sophistication or is operating in a certain way? I mean, why, why isn't that uh, opposite to your views that consciousness is a, some aspect of ultimate reality itself? So I guess I, I'm not quite saying that consciousness is an ultimate aspect of reality itself. Right. What I'm saying is consciousness really is limited to creatures like us. Right. But there's an all-pervading feature of reality, which is the secret ingredient that you need in order to get consciousness. Right. That doesn't mean that that secret ingredient is always associated with consciousness. It just means it's the ingredient that's needed, along with all the clever right. stuff that okay. goes on in our brains, to add up to a conscious experience. Okay. And, Philip, why doesn't that contrast your pancites? Can I say, just before I answer the question, can I just say... I, people I've referred to as neurofundamentalists. I mean, these right. aren't people I've got a great deal of... I just remember I'm going on a conference with lots of them. <laughs> yeah, but, okay. I mean, obviously, he respects you all, Actually, guys. And they, they call us a lot of names, so I think right. it's fair. I hope they take it in the spirit of debate, this, this term, neurofundamentalist. <laughs> you know, we're all... Um, but, yeah, so look, I mean, panpsychism is a very general, theoretical, philosophical framework right. for finding a place for consciousness in nature and sorting out the details of that is obviously going to involve empirical work, a lot of neuroscience. But, I mean, so the, the, the general view would be consciousness is there from the start in the fundamental constituents of matter, and somehow in certain combinations and certain sophisticated arrangements, um, consciousness emerges at a higher level, at a macroscopic level, right? Now, that's a very... What I've said is very, very broad brushstrokes, I would, I would admit right. that. And sorting out, filling in the details of that if it's at all possible, you know, we're at the early stages, I think, of trying to work it out, is going to involve a lot of empirical science and a lot of, you know, hard work. I don't claim to have that answer yet, I'm afraid. OK, fair enough. Uh, I'm not expecting you to know everything. Uh, <laughs> Good. OK, um, maybe bringing it back down, what sort of implications does this have for fields like artificial intelligence? Do you want to... Who wants to take that one? Do you want to... Yeah, well, so I, I think um, there's some very interesting implications. So... Um, I drew a distinction earlier between explaining why we're conscious rather than unconscious and explaining what our conscious experiences are like. Now, if you're really optimistic about artificial intelligence, right. you might say, we're going to create a computer and we're going to know that it's conscious and we're going to know what its experience is like. You might be really pessimistic and say, look, even if you could make a computer that was conscious, you'd have no way of knowing that it was conscious. Right. Okay. But there's an interesting middle ground view, which is where you say one of those two things I mentioned is mysterious and one of them isn't. So one view which I'm particularly attracted to is that we could know when an artificial system is conscious, given appropriate you know, time Because it's behaving in a certain complex way, for instance. Perhaps, exactly. So there's a lot more work to be done, but I'm maybe a bit more optimistic about whether we can deal with that. But we'll never know what its experience is like. Right? When you present the robot with a red tomato, you'll never know whether it's having a reddish experience or a greenish experience or a painful experience, right. for instance, because that's the aspect of consciousness that just goes beyond anything that science can get a grip on. Even if the computer says, I'm seeing red now or whatever, yeah, you can't necessarily know what he means by that or it, it means by that. Yeah. Exactly. One person's red could be another person's green. It's, it's inconclusive evidence. So what is the panpsychic uh, implications for... Panpsychist <laughs> implications for artificial intelligence? 
Well, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of issues that are wide open here. I mean, so suppose we could, out of silicon, build a, a perfect behavioral functional duplicate of a human being. Right. Would that, would that be conscious? I mean, I don't think panpsychism settles that because panpsychism, you know, we'll we not say that every combination of matter is conscious. And a further question is, suppose it's not conscious. Right. Suppose, suppose it has no inner life. Suppose you can't get consciousness from silicon. There's still a further question. Would it have thought? So you, you'd be chatting to By the silicon... By which you mean, sorry. So you'd be chatting to this silicon duplicate and right. they might say... I'm really worried about the world, you know, I'm really worried about how we're going to get global justice and, you know, the situation in Ukraine's problem. So, and we're supposing that it, in, the, in this example, that it's got no inner life whatsoever. Right. Does this being really, is it really worrying about the Ukraine? Is it really concerned about global justice? Some people say yes, because it's, it's a behavioural, functional duplicate of a person. It doesn't matter if it's got no inner life, whereas other people say... Look, if it's got no inner life, it's got no thought. It's a faker. It's just pretending. You're not pretending. It's 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 behaving as though it is concerned about the situation in Ukraine, but it isn't really. And but I you think would make a well. distinction between behaviour and consciousness, surely. But then there's a further question of consciousness and thought. Some people think you can have thought, sophisticated cognitive engagement with the world, hopes, dreams, fears, without having any consciousness at all. That doesn't sound plausible at all to me. doesn't to me either, but it was actually the dominant... I mean, just to back that up, if you look in Anglo-American philosophy in the 20th century, the dominant theories of thought had nothing to say about consciousness. So, oh, I mean, ridiculous. that was the dominant view. Tom. I mean, maybe it, you can make it sound a little more plausible if right. you move from thought to belief. So I think okay. many of us can get a grip on the idea that we have unconscious beliefs. So I'm thinking right now um, that Manchester is bigger than Leeds. Right. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I'm thinking. Okay. I've never thought it before, but I still believed that this morning. I still believed that yesterday. Right. But I didn't believe it consciously. Right. So that belief I had Are you, was you sure you believed it if you never thought it before? Well, I think, you know, it, it might have guided my behaviour. Right. For example, if somebody asked me, is Manchester bigger than Leeds? I would have said yes. Okay. Right. So it's tempting to say, well, the belief was there all along unconsciously. You don't stop believing it when you're not thinking about it. Exactly. Oh, so if we can yeah. make sense of some of my beliefs... I'm a conscious person with some unconscious beliefs. Right. Can't we make sense of somebody who just has unconscious beliefs? Somebody for whom none of their beliefs are conscious. Mm. Right. But so that's not then really thought. That's just uh, mechanical processes which result in behaviour that could uh, be like the behaviour of some thoughtful Well, that's thing. the very question. Some people think... Some people think thought can be completely explained mechanistically. Consciousness you know, can't, it's, it's but like, thought can. It's a bit like saying, oh, well, you haven't really I got water here. What you, all you've done is said there's a load of H2O here, but you haven't explained <laughs> the water. Well, they're saying you know, something similar is going on in the mind. Thinking is nothing more than those mechanical processes you're talking about. So when you say, oh, it's just mechanical but processes... Presumably neither of you believe that, right? So what, I how don't, but we're in a minority among... No, certainly in the sort of Anglo-American... Okay, let, let we're in a minority. Way, what, what would you say against that point of view... Uh, Tom? Uh, I'd say that it's a bit tricky, but I think that the common sense understanding of thought right. does involve consciousness. Uh, and philosophers and scientists alike like to try and carve off consciousness from thought where they can. Just because of this project of dividing one big messy problem into several smaller, more bite-sized problems. Right, yeah. But the difficulty is, in everyday life, we don't divide things up like that. Uh, consciousness infects many of our concepts. So we have a concept of what it is to think, uh, and that concept already has consciousness built into it. 
okay. kind of can't help but associate mm. thinking with consciousness. So you're basically saying that the common sense view is right and the behaviourist view is wrong. I'm saying that the, the behaviourist view risks changing the topic. So right, when they yeah, say, I'm right. talking about thought, you can say, well, it's not what the everyday folk mean when they talk about thought, but it's still something very interesting and relevant. OK, uh, Philip, have you got anything? It's very difficult. There is a big debate at the moment over whether consciousness involves something cognitive, something thought, and, um, or whether it's purely sensory. And you'd think, well, can't we just introspect? And that would be obvious, but... For some reason, there are, philosophers are divided on this. Some claim when they introspect, they just find sensory stuff, you know, colours, tastes, smells. I myself, when I introspect, it's, it seems to me that there is, you know, that my experience is full of concepts. I right. see, I don't see colours and shapes, I see a table. That's part of the character of my experience. But how do you settle this dispute? It's almost as though we're two species, some of which have it, different it, consciousness. I, mean, I don't know, it's very Would difficult. you say it's just an arbitrary way of, you know... I'm choosing to use language this way and I'm choosing to use language this way and you're not going to be able to sort of settle which is the right way to use language. I think that's one of the big projects of philosophers, really. It's, it's getting, getting clearer on our concepts. Everyday words can't do it, so we need better concepts. OK. Uh, well, that's a good place to end now. You've been listening to the, the Philosophy Now radio show with uh, Tom McKelland and Philip Goff uh, and next week we'll be talking about... Camp Immanuel Kant, uh, famous Enlightenment philosopher. Thank you, Francesco, and uh, come back next week at five.